Well, uh, just from our own experience, we know that benefit always comes when we approach a given situation or circumstances with a broader perspective. Uh, I may have told you this before, but when I was hired on as a teacher, there was a high school math teacher hired at the same time as me in the district, and so we went through all these new teacher orientation sessions together, and he was quite a bit older than me at the time, and and we got to, to talking, and he shared how teaching was a second career for him, and his first career had been a forensic traffic accident scene investigator for the Oregon State Police. And so after putting his 20 years or whatever it was in in that field, he retired from that and went back and got his teaching certificate, deciding to be a high school math teacher uh, because math had obviously been a huge part of of his work that he'd done in investigating these scenes. And he wanted to put all those stories and years of experience to good use. And and as the the year started to go by in the the school district there with this guy as a math teacher, it was no secret that, that all the students wanted to take his math class and we could see why. Um, he brought this extremely broad perspective to all his math lessons. So, so you can imagine having a math class with someone who spent their career investing all kinds of traffic accidents. Just imagine the story problems that he could come up with as you, as you work through these things. And, and with that, at the same time, there also wouldn't be a single student in the classroom who could ever have that question that haunts all teachers everywhere, which is, when will I ever use this in real life? Uh, clearly, he could bring the kind of perspective to the table uh, that, that uh, brought math to an interesting level and to a very practical level of usefulness as he relied on all this experience that he had. And so, and so in that, we just recognize there's a great deal of advantage in being able to provide a broad perspective, just like he was able to do with his math lessons. And, and in many ways, it's that advantage of a broad perspective that the preacher to the Hebrews is employing as he takes us through these mini biographies in Hebrews 11 around this subject of faith. Uh, When it comes to living a life of faith, the preacher knows that rather needing a a mere exhortation to live by faith, like he gives us at the end of chapter 10, rather than that uh, mere exhortation, what we also need is to see how the effect of trusting in God and His promises has played out in the lives of those who are trusting in Him. We need a broader spirit. A broader perspective. We need that kind of what does this look like in real life uh, sort of instruction in order to see how we can implement a life of faith of our own. What does it look like to live in light of the fact God makes promises and we can trust Him? We need uh, these perspectives that help fill in an answer to that kind of question. And that broad perspective giving instruction continues this morning in Hebrews 11. As we start to think about this next section of mini biographies, where the preacher focuses now on on what it looks like to live by faith, specifically in the midst of opposition. Now, we've seen little slivers of opposition all through Hebrews 11, but here things become a little bit more specific. And and we see opposition uh, specifically in our verses 23 to 27 as as Moses' life is recounted in the context of, of the Israelites' bondage in Egypt. So, so the preacher's coming to us and he's giving us this main help in verses 23 to 27, which is where we'll focus today, in, in helping us understand that living by faith in the midst of opposition is not only something that's very real for us, but it's something that is, first of all, uh, a, a matter of, of exercising a different kind of seeing. So living by faith in opposition requires, faith works in us, this different kind of, of focus, this different kind of vision. In fact, we just see that theme 
in a sense, metaphorically repeated through these verses, where in verse 23, uh, we have that, that Moses' parents saw that the child was beautiful. In the 24 to 26 section, we have, we have uh, Moses looking ahead to the reward. Verse 27, we have one who sees him who is invisible. There's this focus in this section on the fact that the effect of faith in our lives is that of working out a different kind of seeing. Uh, you've maybe had that, that conversation with a, with a supervisor at work. Those cannot be very fun sometimes. Or, or maybe it was with a parent. Or maybe you've been the one who's had to give the conversation uh, where, where, where somebody says, you just need to be looking at things differently. You just, you just need to have your, 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 your understanding changed a bit here. And in a sense, that's what the preacher's doing for these, uh, for these uh, Christian believers in this letter. He's telling them that, that the way they're looking needs to be adjusted by faith in order that they can continue to go on and persevere. And so uh, he's, in a sense, a- answering that question, how, how should we look at things? When, when the immediate situations that we're in seem so contrary to true gospel living, to the way of life that God reveals to us. How should, we, how should we be looking at things in those kinds of circumstances? And certainly the first audience of Hebrews would have, would have sat up in their seats on this occasion uh, simply because that theme hits right at the center of the struggles that they've been facing. How should we be looking at things when the immediate situation we're in seems so contrary to a life of faith? The first audience of Hebrews, after all, they had to categorize what it meant for them to have friends who went to prison for their trust in Jesus. They had their property seized because of their allegiance to Christ. They had public ridicule uh, taking place in in their lives, in the lives of their friends. We read all about that in chapter 10. So what kind of view do we need to have in order to go on in a way that's trusting in God? The the first audience of, of this letter would have certainly had that question. And it's a question that we can have as well. When we look out and we see a significant development just in culture and society around us that are contrary to God's design. Or, or when we, we navigate friendships or working relationships or even family dynamics that are tense because of what it means for us to be committed to Jesus Christ. In so many ways, we can have this same question. How, how do I see well in this? Where do I fix my attention and my focus when certain things around me seem so opposed to living for Jesus. And that's the kind of help we have here in verses 23 to 27, as our understanding of a life of faith is now going to be informed by, by Moses' experience. The preacher moves now into some biographical information from Moses' life to take uh, for, for our example. And so as we look at this, uh, recognizing that, uh, that, that uh, living by faith in the midst of opposition involves a different kind of seeing, as we see, that's what, what, where he's going with all this. We can start in on verse 23 and understand that in the midst of circumstances that would oppose our faith, it's actually very critical to set our gaze, so it's important to fix our eyes on what God approves, on what God approves. Now, I know that sounds like a very basic thing to say, but, but this is actually worked out in a fairly profound way in this text. So, so look at verse 23. Let me, let me read it again. Verse 23, the preacher says, By faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. They saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. So, so here in, in verse 23, we have a reference to a story that comes from the beginning of the book of Exodus. 
uh, during a time when the oppression of the Hebrew people was very real as they were slaves in Egypt, and, and that was actually reaching uh, new heights of difficulty for them, especially because Pharaoh was growing more and more concerned that the Israelites were increasing in number so quickly, he was actually worried that the Israelites were ultimately going to overtake the Egyptians. And so not only did Pharaoh... Um, force the Israelite people into slave labor. But in Exodus 1 and 2, we also read about how Pharaoh gave the order to put to death all Hebrew male children when they were born. So he didn't want the, the Israelites, obviously, to continue to grow as a people group. And, and it's in the midst of that horrific, obviously horrific set of, of conditions, uh, clearly in direct opposition to the God of life. It's in, it's in those conditions uh, that Moses was born. And here in verse 23, we're told that Moses' parents didn't follow the king's edict and allow for their son to be killed, but instead they hid him for three months. And they did this, as the text says here, because they saw, they saw that the child was beautiful. So, they had something in their view that was more important than Pharaoh's decree. They, they saw that their child was beautiful. Now, to make full sense of this, we need to understand what this beautiful description is all about. What are the implications of this? Well, what does it mean that Moses' parents saw that the child was beautiful? Uh, we can wonder, for example, if this is just a comment on Moses' physical appearance as a baby. So, so at first pass, it just sounds like his parents uh, hid him for the simple reason that he was a nice-looking boy, right? And so it would follow that if Moses would have, the poor kid, been an ugly baby, they wouldn't have hidden, hidden him at all. Uh, but, but that doesn't sound actually very pious. That doesn't sound like an exemplary posture of faith, does it? To, to live in this kind of way simply based on the external looks of a little tiny baby. That, that doesn't quite uh, seem to be commendable. And, and of course, that's because there's much more to this beautiful comment than just a general reference to physical appearance. Because this word translated beautiful here, uh, we discover, is regularly used in Greek literature uh, to reference those who were well approved in society in general. So, so it's a term that's used to describe a person's unique status. It's a word that describes a, a uniquely uh, acceptable and well-pleasing standing in, in, in a context. And, and in fact, we can be sure it's this well-pleasing idea be behind the word translated beautiful here because of what we read over in Acts chapter 7. It's always a good reminder to us that anytime we're confronted with something a little difficult to interpret, the first rule is always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Where else can we go in the Bible to help us understand what's being said here? And we can go over to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is making that speech just before he's martyred. And as Stephen is recounting Israel's history, he brings up this situation, referencing where Moses' parents hid him from Pharaoh uh, during that whole murder campaign. Same situation as what's described in Hebrews. And in his speech, Stephen also tells us that Moses' parents hid him because he was beautiful, same word as here, but Stephen qualifies it further by saying Moses' parents hid him because they saw Moses was beautiful in God's sight. In God's sight. So, so when we put that together, we can see that Moses' parents didn't hide him for these kind of superficial reasons of physical appearance. But instead, we can understand they saw something of God's unique and special approval upon Moses. So, so when Moses was born, uh, there seemed to be an awareness on the part of his parents that he was uniquely set apart as special by God in a certain way. He, he was uniquely approved, if we can use that word, uniquely well-pleasing in God's sight. His parents could see that, however that worked out. And for that reason, 
they hid him from Pharaoh's murder plot. Which brings us back to our point about the effect of faith in the midst of opposition and how it informs our seeing. By faith, Moses' parents did this. But we could hardly fault them if their field of vision was completely consumed by the edict of this most powerful tyrant in the land. We could understand how easy it would have been for them to fear this man who could come and bring such murderous treachery into their lives. Pharaoh was a horrific leader bent on making the life of the Hebrew people totally miserable. Fear could have been the main thing before these parents' eyes. But faith does something different to them. And that in the midst of this very dangerous opposition, faith looked at things differently. And so instead of Moses' parents' gaze being fixed on the one who would have seemed so big and scary, the Pharaoh at the time, instead they were prepared to see what God was generally, uh, genuinely approving in their lives. There was this well-pleasing reality in their lives as they looked upon this baby boy that they had, and they had the eyes of faith to see that something unique about Moses was present and his connection to God's greater purpose. And in that place of faith-filled vision, you notice in the text that these parents, their fear of the king dissipated. They didn't fear the king's edict. Instead, they acted in accord to what they saw with eyes of faith, and they hid their boy. They lived for what God was uniquely approving. And in this case, the boy Moses. They could see there's something unique here. There's purpose here. And we can see how useful this example is because when it comes to facing opposition to faithfulness, our gaze can so easily be fixed directly on the specific nature of things that are against the way of God. Isn't that how it can go? In the midst of things going contrary to God's good way, the contrary bent of those things can be, in in one sense, all-consuming for us. We can be reading the news feeds and the Twitter feeds and all of these things and be consumed by by the fact that there's all this contrariness to the good way of God's way of life all around us. We can be consumed in our seeing with what is opposite of the way of righteousness and there can be a kind of preoccupation that starts to dominate us along those lines. And what the preacher is saying here is that in a context of opposition, we need to be able to set our gaze uh, on what God is currently approving, even in the midst of very contrary circumstances. We need to be able to fixate our attention on the realities of His purposes that continue to stand, even when things around seem to be otherwise crumbling down. Persecution for the Hebrew people abounds. It's, It's Obviously going on to a high degree there in the context of Moses' birth. The fear of Pharaoh would seem only reasonable in that context. But these parents see something good about God's purposes with Moses. And so that's where they turn as they exercise themselves in faithful living. They hide Moses and so on because they have eyes of faith to see this. And in the same way, it's so important for us to be able to look out with this different kind of seeing. We need to be able to fixate on the realities of God's purposes that clearly exist even in the midst of things that can seem so contrary. So take, for example, just as a big example, take the fact that we live in a current climate that is becoming more and more opposed to the historical beliefs of Christianity regarding the ethics of sexuality. There's no secret that that's going on right now. Um, opposition to Christian beliefs in this realm are increasing by the day. And, and it would be possible for us in that climate, in this climate, to be consumed by fear 
based on what might come down next from, from this court or from that bill passed in Congress or whatever it may be. And it's not that we don't give attention to that. Obviously, we're prudent and we do. But instead of being pressed by fear in these opposing times, the eyes of faith are trained to see things differently. Instead of being consumed by those things that are going on, in the midst of that opposition, we're trained by faith to set our sights on what God says is good. We, we focus on what God approves and says is well-pleasing, even when opposition to His good way is so prominent around us. And so just to take this as a practical example, what good does God approve in a context such as our current cultural climate? Well, one thing that we can be sure God approves is our loving and consistent witness to His truth. We know that, don't we? We can fix our gaze on what it means to love those who even oppose our ethics. We can fix our gaze on what it means to serve them. We can fix our gaze on the fact that while the world around us is so broken down and hopeless and looking for a reason for their existence and a solution to their, to their confusion and a love to fill their void, we, we, can, we can set our gaze on the good opportunity that God has provided us with in our current cultural time and recognize that Jesus has put us down here right now in the world as it is in order to be ambassadors for Him. And as we do that, what happens is our entire point of view is changed. Our, 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 our perspective changes. The things that we're focusing our eyes on change. Instead of, instead of fear forcing us back and back and back as we look at all of these things going on, instead, that fear is replaced with purpose as we recognize that even in the middle of these kinds of things, God's good way is standing and Jesus Himself has purpose for us in the world as we go on bearing witness to Him in so many different ways. So we're not enough on the sidelines having to, to wring our hands all sweaty saying what in the world's going to become of, of our Judeo-Christian model for sexuality. We, quite frankly, don't need to bother with that question because we know the answer already. It's undone. What we can do, though, is be down on our knees in prayer for revival and out with our neighbors and friends displaying lives filled with God's wisdom and love and compassion and care. And with our eyes on those kinds of things, as we fix our gaze on the things that God says is good, as we do that, fear in the midst of opposition to God's good way is replaced with a great deal of purpose, even in the midst, if not even more in the midst, of darker days. Moses' parents could, could, could see. They could see with faith. Murders all around. Oh, but there's something about God's good purpose for this boy. Let's set our eyes on that. Let's live in light of that truth, approving uh, what God is approving and living for the purpose that he has. So that's, that's the first thing for us to think about. Faith in the midst of opposition is a matter of seeing differently. And in a particular way, that means we set our eyes on God's good purposes. We look at what God continues to approve, even in the midst of a dark world. So that's first. We fix our gaze on what God approves. We focus that way. Secondly, as we think about faith in the midst of opposition, we can also see how faith involves seeing not just what God approves, but faith is also uh, fixated on looking toward a future reward, a future reward. And, and this is a concept, of course, that runs through all, all of Hebrews. And again, it's a fairly general thing to say, but it plays out in a unique way in verses 24 to 26. So, so if you have an eye on those verses, um, you can look at those. And in verses 24 to 26, we're reminded that Moses 
ended up in a place of, of great wealth and prosperity in Egypt. It's, a, it's an amazing story. You remember the story from Exodus chapter 2, how Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses from the water where his parents were hiding him uh, during that time. And ultimately, Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses in as her own son. So, so there's Moses going from almost murdered to now the grand, adopted grandson of, of Pharaoh himself. And, and in one sense, uh, that is the highest level of prominence and association and connection and well-being that one could ever attain. That, that is the ultimate where, where Moses ended up in, in one sense. And yet, instead of capitalizing on that position of prominence that Moses grew up connected to, instead, we're told in verse 25 that Moses chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In other words... Moses chose to leave the high place of wealth and material well-being and social well-being and just about every other kind of well-being, really. He left that in order to live a life identifying with God's people in their suffering condition. He chose to associate with the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt instead of remain connected to his high position of royalty in Egypt. So, so very directly here, we're told that Moses made a value determination to reject this, this sinful opportunity of indulgence, of, of being removed from God's people, even though that would have certainly been immediately more attractive. He rejected that easier place, which was removed from the people of God, in order to have solidarity with the people of God. Now, I'll just say that again, because that's critical to where the preacher's going here in this section. Moses rejected that easier place, which was removed from the people of God, in order to have solidarity with the people of God. And, and so we stop and take note of, of the implications that the, the preacher is angling on here. Just this point alone would have been an important one that the preacher wanted his first audience of Hebrews to take note of. Because remember, these Christians were struggling with remaining associated with God's people. And, and not just in terms of going back to the old covenant ways like we've seen all through the book, uh, struggling to go back to that old covenant a way of relating to God uh, like they were tempted to do in order to be relieved of the pressure of what it means to follow Jesus and all of those things. But this first audience, these Christians were tending uh, to remain separate instead of assembling with one another. There's a very tangible separation that was starting to happen, so much so that back in chapter 10, the preacher has to tell them, don't neglect this as assembling together. Don't neglect coming together. Although we know why it would have been such a grand temptation to not come together. Because what happens for those who are associated with the people of Jesus at the time when Hebrews was written? Well, we know from chapter 10 that those are the kind of people who get put into prison. Those are the kind of people whose property gets confiscated. Those are the kind of people who endure public ridicule. And so what is, I'm thinking to myself, Jared, drinking my morning cup of coffee on Sunday at 9.45, what don't I want to do? I don't want to go to church and sit with those people who keep getting arrested and ridiculed and all those things. I'm just going to stay separated from that in my comfortable area in order that I won't have to endure the things that they're enduring. So, so this first audience of Hebrews, they knew what it was to have this temptation away from association with God's people. But the preacher says, no, no, no. Don't forget about Moses. Remember what Moses, how Moses exercised faith. Instead of being removed from God's people in that place of comfort and ease and privilege, all of those things, Moses comes down to identify with God's people in the midst of their suffering, leaving those fleeting pleasures of sin. So, so the biographical example on this point is clear that there is, there is either the choice of sinful indulgence removed from God's people, 
where life is certainly easier for the moment. Being a royal Egyptian did have its perks. So there's either the being removed, that sinful indulgence, or there's this choice of faith, which in this case compelled Moses to identify with the people of God, even though it brought hardship. It's not unlike the the situation that the first hearers of of this letter are are, uh, facing. And, And to a certain degree, we can know this kind of pressure too, at least in certain levels. It's easier to claim no connection to God's people and have others around us nod their heads approvingly than to claim connection to God's people and deal with the associated rejection and shaking head or confusion or whatever it is. It's just easier not to bring up the fact that we are of uh, the, the Christ-following group. I know even in a conversation with my neighbor, he, he's, he said, read something about Christians somewhere, and he said, is that, what you're, is that you? Is that what you guys think? And half the time you're finding yourself having to explain what it really means to follow Jesus instead of what you know, whatever it is that the Wall Street Journal's reporting about followers of Jesus or whatever it might be. But we know what it is to be associated with the group of Christ followers and be pressured as a result. It'd be much easier just to say, no, 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 you know, I, I mean, I grew up with that, but I'm not really, I don't really jump on board with that anymore. Oh, that'd be a nod of approval, wonderful, that's fine. But you see, the preacher's working very hard here to make this point which we need to be very, which we need, need to be clear on. To claim no connection to God's people and have others around us fine with that, is, is, a, is a critical point, like he says here, of unique sin, and that we're distancing ourselves uh, from, from, uh, from God's own people, which, which ultimately comes down to an issue of Christ-centered faith. So, so if we keep going here and just get to the point that's, that's coming here in the end, the preacher's working to help us understand that how we approach this connection with God's people will help to show whether we're really associated with Jesus at all or not. And we catch this in the way the preacher starts talking about the way Moses left the safety and wealth of Egypt for, for, for the, 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 the suffering identification with God's people, uh, which ultimately is a statement about Moses' relationship to Christ himself. There's a connection that's made there in verse 26. So look at verse 26. We're told there that Moses considered the reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. So so we'll talk about it in a second, but you see the connection. Moses identifying with God's suffering people is making it evident that Moses is prepared to engage in the reproach of Christ rather than live for the fleeting pleasures of sin. This is a Christ-centered association that's going on here as Moses steps away from the luxury of Egypt to identify with the suffering of the Israelites. There's a Christ-centered association. And so what is this? What is this statement, reproach for the sake of Christ? What does this mean? Obviously, Jesus came many years after Moses, um, so, so, so what are we being told here about Moses' association with Jesus? Well, it, it does help us to think through this on a couple levels. On, on the one hand, it can help to know that, that if we were just reading the straight Greek text, literally the text reads here, considered the reproach of Christ. Now the, the uh, translators here in the, C, in the CSB, just for the sake of interpretive help, put in for the sake of Christ. And there's an element of that, which we're going to talk about in a second. But in a straightforward way, it's Moses is, is uh, c- considering the reproach of Christ. So there's this association with Christ. And that reproach of Christ can be understood on, on a couple levels as we think about Moses' life and ministry. On the one hand, that reproach of Christ 
can be one of direct association with the promised Christ figure. In other words, Moses is identifying with the fact that there is this suffering Savior who is going to come through the line of God's people who will bring an ultimate kind of salvation. And Moses would know that because Moses is the inspired author of the book of Genesis. And what do we read in Genesis chapter 3? That promise to Eve that God gives. Well, he promises Eve that while an offspring of hers would ultimately bring about relief from the serpent and the curse, that offspring of hers is going to be a suffering Savior. He's going to crush the serpent's head, but that serpent is going to bruise his heel. There's going to be suffering with this one who's going to come. And so Moses, in identifying with the fact that this promise has come down through the corridors of history, through the line of God's people, he's identifying with the fact that this suffering one is going to come through this group. And I'm a part of that group that's going to see the salvation of God. And it's no wonder we're suffering because we're looking forward to a suffering Redeemer, a suffering Savior. So he's identifying with the reproach of Christ on that level. He's saying, I'm with these people through whom this hope is going to come. And then on another level, we can also see that this, and that would be like suffering for the sake of Christ. That's why the translators put it in there like that. I'm suffering for the sake of being with this group who Christ is going to come. And then at another level, we can also see that there is a suffering here that is simply a Christ-like picture that we're given with, with Moses. The, the preacher is saying to him, in a sense, uh, as, as Moses is suffering, it's a Jesus kind of suffering that Moses is doing. It's, Jesus is the, is the perfect paradigm of the, of the kind of suffering we actually see Moses engaging in, which points forward ultimately to Jesus. It's a suffering like Jesus. And we see that just as we think about, uh, about Moses' own uh, engagement in what's going on here in his ministry. Because Moses left the glories of the palace. Well, what's that suffering like? That's suffering like the Savior who's ultimately going to leave the glories of heaven. And why did Moses leave the glories of the palace? Well, left the glories of the palace to identify with this people who's suffering and in bondage and in need of rescue. Why did Jesus leave the glories of heaven? We have the glories of heaven to identify with us lost in our sin, the deep bonds of that sin, and we need that rescue as well. And then what does Moses do? Well, he leads those suffering people through the exodus to a place of freedom. And what does Jesus do? Well, after identifying with us, he goes through death and resurrection and brings us to a place of promised freedom. So there's this sense in which Moses, just the style of his life, the faith-compelled style of his life, is prefiguring the significance of what Jesus himself would do. Moses is doing stuff like Jesus did, pointing forward in that way. And so we put all that together and we recognize that, that we're being grounded in the fact that Moses' actions are based on a Christ-centered faith, not only recognizing the promise that's there and that suffering with these people is going to ultimately be the path of redemption, but he's also recognizing, uh, but he's also pointing forward to the fact that Jesus is going to come and he is, in a sense, emulating uh, what, what, that, what that ultimately will look like. How much of that he understood, we can't know, except we can say that he pointed forward in very significant ways in the Exodus. And so when we put all that together, we have this, this wonderful picture of identifying with the people of God amid opposition, which is a, a Christ-centered uh, expression of faith. And all of that ultimately is driving us to this final phrase of verse 26. So, so, so why could Moses live in a Christ 
uh, like suffering sort of way in the midst of opposition? Why can we live in a Christ-like suffering sort of way? Why would we go about living our lives in a sacrificial way for those who are lost and dying, desiring to see them come to a full knowledge of the gospel? Why do people live in a way that identifies with Christ and his suffering as his followers in the midst of all the opposition that we can face? Well, it's because of where we're looking. Moses did it because of where he's looking in verse 26. He was willing to identify with the suffering community of God's people in this way because he was looking ahead to the reward. See that there at the end of 26? Moses, again, has his gaze shifted from the fleeting temporal pleasures of sin to the glories of future reward that he knew awaited the faithful. So he could live faithfully amid steep opposition to God's good way, identifying with the suffering people of God because he ultimately saw the future glory of God's promises. Which which again is so critical when we think about our own lives of faith, even when things seem opposed to God's good way. Moses' example here, it helps us shift where we're looking and it helps us shift where we're looking as we make these value judgments. We're able to see that there's maybe temporary relief over here by disassociation with what it means to be faithful to Jesus. There's temporary relief. We can even say there's worldly wealth. There's worldly well-being over here. But what we ultimately find over here is nothing compared to the future reward that we're absolutely assured of through the coming death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the fact that what he has accomplished has brought about this future reward that we look forward to and we live running toward. That's what Hebrews has been about so much, isn't it? We're going in the direction of Christ. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be trusting in the fact that all that's been accomplished through God's purposes is reaching this climax and connecting with the people of God who are going on this way to glory. We can't separate ourselves from them. We've got to be with them. And why are we with them? Well, we see the reward. Our eyes of faith are trained in this unique kind of way. And so that's what what the preacher is helping us with here. It makes it much easier to understand why we persevere like we do. We're not going on simply because in this life, all the the wonderful uh, benefits and accolades that come because of our staunch faith in Jesus Christ. No. Remember how Paul talks about that in Corinthians. If this is it for us, man, we're to be pitied as Christian believers. But this isn't it for us. In fact, this is hardly anything for us. We're looking forward to the eternality of reward. And as that is out in front of our sight, then these other things tend to fall into the place they belong. That thing's kind of sparkly over there, but that's nothing like the eternal rest of Jesus' paradise presence. I'm running that way. So faith looks in this different direction. Faith looks forward in time. Not to what's fleeting in this life, whether it be riches or whatever. Faith looks forward in time, ultimately, uh, to what's, all, what's promised us through the, the suffering of the superior son. And so, uh, this, this is also helpful for us as we try to, uh, try to categorize what it looks like to live by faith in times that are op- uh, opposing to, uh, to a life of faith. Not only... Are we starting by, by working to, to, to see what God approves? What's the good work that God is doing here in the midst of these things? But we also have our, our eyes fixed forward on all that's promised in the, in the life to come. And then finally, we'll just say one more thing here. Um, we also note in verse 27 that we're helped to understand that faith in the midst of opposition uh, includes seeing things differently, particularly as, as faith looks to the one who is invisible which is just an interesting statement to make to begin with, looking at what's invisible. 
Um, But we see this in verse 27 where we have a reference to Moses leaving Egypt behind. Moses didn't fear Pharaoh, but instead he took the people with him as they engaged in in the events of the Exodus. He encouraged the people to trust. Exodus 14, he's telling the people not to fear. The Lord is going to deliver us. And he brings them with him. Uh, out of this land of bondage to the ultimate freedom that they've been promised uh, by God and, and, and that's been procured for them by the power of God. Uh, Moses guides them in this way, and he does so how? Well, he does so, as the text says, not being afraid of the king's anger, but instead he's looking, he's seeing him who is invisible. In other words, Moses has his gaze fixed on the supreme, uh, on, on the supremacy of God, and the power that he's demonstrated, the, promise, the power that he's promised to exercise in order to bring his people's relief. He has his gaze fixed on what ultimately isn't seen uh, by, by, by the uh, natural eye, but can be discerned by the eyes of faith. With that, which actually brings us back to verse 1 of Hebrews. Because what, what is faith in its essence to begin with? Well, faith, faith is the reality of the unseen. Faith is that uh, component that God puts into our hearts as we believe in order that we can behold with these eyes of faith those things that may not be right before us in terms of our normal field of vision. And Moses is demonstrating a wonderful exercise of this truth as he sees the one who can't right now be seen. Which, when we think about it, puts us right down at the center of what the preacher to the Hebrews is trying to get at all along. In fact, it takes us back to Hebrews chapter 2, where the preacher has already told us that this Jesus who we're supposed to be paying attention to, this Jesus, he has superiority over all things. And then he says this, we don't yet see everything subjected to Jesus. But, and then he makes this comment, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death and so on. In other words, there's a natural component where we don't see this right before us in the field of our vision. We don't see the domination of Christ over all things so plainly as we watch a culture go this way or society go that way or or different things going on in lives that represent evil. We're waiting for the final culmination of Jesus' vast demonstration of his eternal superiority. Like we sang earlier, he's going to come on a white horse he'll ride. He's coming. To bring about all that justice. We don't see it all yet. But at the same time, the preacher is saying, but we do see Jesus. We do. While Jesus' supremacy remains something that our physical eyes have not yet beheld, we do see Jesus as we fix our eyes of faith on what's invisible. This is why Moses could persevere and not fear in the face of Pharaoh's power and anger. And so, too, we need this kind of vision to see Jesus for who he is, this one who is who has ultimate glory and honor over all things. And as we see him for who he is, the immediacy of opposition to his way will be put in a props at all things. Right. How can opposition stand when this one is over all things and he's coming to set all things right? I need my eyes set on him. So in the moments where the, where the loud sounds of the world around us can seem so powerful, by faith we see the one who truly reigns supreme. And in seeing Jesus, what do we do? But we keep on. He's coming. And so on those days, just as a final point of application, on those days when, when the opposition is particularly strong, and we can know those days in different degrees, On those days where we might not be able to get uh, such a good glimpse, for example, maybe of of what God approves in a certain situation. We may be thinking, I just can't see the good in this right now. There's there's so much around, I'm overwhelmed by it, I can't see the good in this. Or on those days where we might have trouble really grasping the significance of our future reward. 
You know, I know it's there. I, I believe it in faith, but it just, it seems so far from the immediacy of the pressure or the pain or the memories or whatever it might be. On those days, what we're climactically told to do in a section such as this is to set our gaze on the one who we can see with eyes of faith. More important than the, the immediacy of what might be approved, more important than the eternality of, of future rest, more, importantly is, more important is that we can fix our eyes on the one who procures all this for us and see him in the place of glory and honor that he ultimately occupies. Which becomes very practical when we find ourselves in a place saying, I feel weak in these ways and I can't comprehend with eyes of faith what's going on. But what I can comprehend is the priesthood of Jesus. The fact that in my weakness, he stands always interceding for me, prepared to give me timely mercy and grace that I need as I'm enduring these kinds of struggles. I can see the priest, uh, Jesus as my high priest standing there, making a way for me. Lord Jesus, please continue to give me strength. Or going through a difficulty, we can still consider Jesus and the guidance that he offers. That he's the better shepherd who, though I may be going through a valley of the shadow of death at the moment, he's the one who's going to bring me to green pastures and I can see him as my guide. I can look to him as my guide. I can appeal to him as my guide. I can open his truth to show me how I ought to go. So in these ways, we're able to consider Jesus climactically. And as we do, whatever these other things are, they tend to fall into place, whatever Congress may decide, whatever, whatever my extended family may think about me, whatever my friends may say about me, even whatever sin may tempt me, it is all reduced by the brilliant, assured glories of Jesus. So, so the effect of faith is such that it works in us this different kind of seeing. I'm looking at things that I might not otherwise have set my gaze upon with such vigor, but I'm looking by God's help, I'm looking at these things. And as a result, ultimately what I'm focusing my attention on is this Jesus who's the superior son who not only maintains me in future promises, uh, but upholds me in the midst of the now as I'm enduring these things. So ultimately, I think Moses would have liked the song, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be till, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. So take the world, but give me Jesus. All the earth joys, they're nothing compared to knowing Christ and all that he offers to us. And he ultimately is the one then upon whom we set our gaze. So we're thankful for, for encouragement along those lines from this text this morning. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we do ask that we would be helped today in our trusting. We ask that we would see Christ and his purposes uh, for what they are. See him as the glorious one over all things the superior son, the one who has preeminence. Uh, Father, we ask that we would be able to turn our eyes to him when other things might otherwise distract us and see uh, that ultimately nothing can thwart the perfection of his plan and the almighty truth of his rule. We look forward to his return. And while we live in the now, we continue to trust that uh, he's the one who preserves us. Through him, we're accepted by you. And through him, eternal Blessings of reward are guaranteed, and we thank you for that assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.